0: Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Uphazors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men, where we demystify Black excellence. My name is Ian Rowe, and I'm a resident fellow of the American Enterprise Institute.
1: Hello, I'm Nike Fasier as a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And today we have uh, an exceptional guest, uh, a gentleman who has done amazing things in the sports arena, in the business arena, and in life. You know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about who, who who's the greatest athlete. And we have a gentleman with us today from 1974, call it, to uh, 1984 collected three world championships seven World Cups uh, won three NC2a national championships probably lost Lee maybe ten times over that 10year period you know so you're talking about hundreds of victories in a sport where there's no net, no basket, no helmet, no racket it's you and another man trying to dominate one another uh, and today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Lee Kemp to the podcast.
2: Th- thank you so much, boy. I really feel pretty special after hearing that. <laughs> <But> <laughs> thank you, Mike. You, appreciate it, and uh, very, very honored to be on the podcast. Absolutely.
0: Well, Lee, it's yeah, great to have you. Welcome to the Invisible Men. You know, we the, our whole idea is to introduce our audience to exceptional people that they may have not had the chance to know, but really want to learn from your story. And you know we like to just start off with just asking, you know, where were you? Who were you before you won all those <laughs> victories? You know, when you, what's your origin story? And was there anything significant that occurred in your life that put you on this path where you where you recognize that greatness was actually accessible to you too?
2: Well, that's a great question, uh, in depth question. Uh, Will, I have to pause for a few seconds to think about it because uh, my, my story is uh, not uncommon, I would say, because I was adopted. You know, there's a lot of uh, young boys, girls today that are adopted, given up by their parents uh, at birth, as I was, you know, not uncommon, but it happened. But that's my origins. I was uh, given up at birth. Uh, my biological mother, uh, her name was Barbara. I had a chance to meet her in my 30s. Um, but when, at the time she had me, uh, she was I think 19, and she already had a two-year-old, two different men. She was going down a path that would have been very tough for me had had I been raised by her. So it was just a blessing that uh, that I was given up for adoption at birth. And but I was five though when I was adopted, so I was institutionalized for a while. So uh, not not many not many people, parents who want children don't you know will go and adopt a a child that's already five or six or so, something like that, ready to turn six. Normally they want a, an infant that they can raise and go through that. So I'm, you know, I didn't have that. And being a parent myself, I know that those first five years are pretty critical. So, uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a child psychologist, so I can't delve into that, but I know there had to have been some unique, unique things during that period of my life that helped shape me for who I am today. And, uh, But again, as I said, I was fortunate enough to be adopted into a a black family, an older couple. They didn't have any kids. So I grew up as an only child. So that's another unique uh, marker that helped move me down the path that I ended up getting on because here I find this individual sport uh, called wrestling, which is totally individual. And it it suited my personality. You know, I spent a lot of time alone. I was focused a lot and... uh, uh, a new revelation that has come to my mind because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, Incident, I've been interviewed a lot lately about, you know, my life, wrestling life and all that stuff. So uh, I've been thinking about it a lot. And, and what came into my mind recently was the fact that when you have kids, you know, you know what it's like when an infant starts crying, they learn very quickly how to get attention, you know, whether they're hungry or whatever. You hear this baby screaming, you go stop and you figure out what it, what it wants. But I believe, have no proof of this, but being institutionalized in a home with other kids screaming, whatever, uh, without an individual mother and father caring for you all those first five years, that I think, in my mind, I think I learned very uh, early on that no one's coming to save you. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, that's just how deep I've been thinking about this now because I have kids now that I've raised and we get into conversations. My children all know my biological mother And I've got, you know, biological siblings that I know uh, that I've had a chance to meet. But I think all that rolled into this crazy individual, tough sport of wrestling where absolutely no one comes and saves you, you know, you have to make it on your own. So from birth, I was in this mode of survival, I guess you would say. Uh, And I, I don't. I don't have any knowledge that I was ever abused or anything like that, so I can't go down that road. But uh, uh, I do know that that there's some unique things about my personality that that allowed me to, to do what I did in wrestling, and uh, and then even academically, you know, I, I've I've excelled in arenas where I didn't think I was any good in, which which I'm sure we'll bring up even in this podcast because being as a being a black person in America it's easy to feel like you can't accomplish academic things or you're made to feel sometimes that you're not smart and those type of things. So, uh, you know, I went through all all that. And uh, but uh, anyway, that's kind of the beginnings of of my life. Uh, And I'll add to it uh, that I was raised by a a wonderful family that I always will call my parents because they are uh, a Black couple, older Black couple. They are in their 50s. Uh, from the South, so uh, they, they brought with them all those hardworking ideals, you know, uh, came to the North for a better life. All that stuff uh, was embodied in me when they adopted me in Cleveland. So I'm, I'm a child of the 60s, basically. I was born in 1956. So, you know, we were living in <clears throat> Cleveland, not the inner city, but, you know, right on the outskirts of Cleveland during um, all that. Racial unrest that occurred during 19 in the late 60s, you know, with Martin Luther King being assassinated, in 1968. You know, you know, I was 12 years old, but I was old enough to know what was going on then. My parents moved from Cleveland to Chardon because of that. You know, most major cities in the United States were, in, and you know, they were rioting, they were under siege basically. Cleveland was no different. Uh, my parents wanted to get out of that and moved moved our family to Chardon, Ohio, which was a farming community, 30 miles northeast of East Cleveland, probably, I don't know, probably less than one-tenth of one percent white, or even black. I a mean, whole, other, whole other world. <laughs> you no, know, it, it was just an absolutely whole other world, but uh, that's where I found wrestling, and, well, that's where I learned about hard work. You know, my dad coming from the South, and he was from that old school where you couldn't talk back, you know, if you looked at him wrong, you would get probably punished, you know, so... It was uh, 100% total respect for authority and your parents. And uh, my dad was a hard worker, so uh, we had a farm. He had a regular job in the city of Cleveland. He'd drive back there, but he was living his dream having this farm. And I got to watch that. I got to watch two things. I got to watch him first leave Cleveland and go to Shard when everyone told him it was a bad idea. You know, our relatives, you know, the black community. You know, I grew up in an all black teachers and in much school the whole thing but they were saying why do you want to move to charge why do you want to move around with all those white folks why do you know bad decisions don't do it it's dumb everything you could possibly and i would hear this but my father looked way past that and my mom they wanted a farm at what age was so, it
0: what age um
2: i was um that's a, uh it was uh 1968
0: oh so you were already so, 12 okay
2: yeah yeah i was 12 19, yeah we moved we moved right after the riots and stuff i think it was just a time that my parents just said this is we've had enough it was dangerous it was really dangerous and uh, i think i think my dad just wanted a farm you know and the last time you know i checked i guess there are no farms in inner city cleveland so so, so <laughs> he, they still aren't they still aren't so i don't think it was just a white thing i'm sure it wasn't that I, he just wanted a, a better life you know and uh and it, and it really translated into that. And I saw him just transform this this 25 acres of land into this beautiful farm. We had animals: we had cows, pigs, and chickens, and all that. While he had a regular factory job that he went to, and so I saw a man uh, gain something that he wanted against what I would consider, you know, odds. It certainly wasn't unpopular uh, decision. There was one or two black families in the whole town. I was one of three black kids in the whole high school. So, you know, needless to say, it was a little bit intimidating growing up there and being in school there. Um, but anyway, that that created the foundation from, for me.
0: Wow, that's that's really powerful. I mean, the the metaphor that you say that this idea that no one was coming to save you, I wonder how much that, that has applied not just to wrestling but to every aspect of your life
2: I think it has to my, my son mentioned something to me recently we were going through and you know I, I feel even bad saying this it seems weird because I I'm well educated I had great jobs and all this kind of stuff but I fell in some really hard times and I even to this day I can't understand how I got to the place I got to and it wasn't because of drugs or anything like that but I just was was just in a tough spot and uh you know I owned the car dealership the night you know in 2008 and that was when the economy was crashing car dealerships were being bailed out by then president obama all that stuff so i owned a car dealership then and i went through a divorce and lost everything got to a point where you know I lost my children and it was really a struggle it was tough and so anyway i got my my two younger kids back in uh, uh, oh wow after that i'm trying to think of the year but but anyway, finally got them back. Uh, struggled, you know, as a single dad with two kids. Uh, I had a ten-year-old. Uh, I guess it was the year. Oh um, uh, so, my gosh, I can't even think now. What? Two, thousand ten. I guess yeah, two thousand ten is when I got my kids back. So so I was struggling with trying to figure out how to be a single dad, trying to have a job, you know, all that kind of stuff. So my hat goes off to people that do that, uh, men and women who have. To raise the responsibility of raising kids by themselves when you have small kids so that that was difficult for me so my kids watched me firsthand struggle and i think as adults i've seen and witnessed parents adults people like myself my peers we want to make things easier for our kids so we so we take hardships away from our kids so that they don't have to struggle and you know we you know it's almost like it's a sign of success when we can pass things on to our kids wealth or businesses or things like that so we all we just blindly do it and sometimes I think we cripple our kids you know in a way but my kids got to see me struggling because I was struggling they were struggling so they learned to appreciate things like uh, I mean little things like when my son wanted a playstation he understood there was no playstation coming because we didn't have it you know there was no it wasn't like we're living this nice big house and I'm saying to my child I have my Mercedes out in the, in the driveway, and I'm telling him he can't have a he can't have a PlayStation. right You know, we're living in a raw, really s- small little house I rented with nothing. I'm driving a, an old car, struggling. You know, but I mean, it's still me. You know, I'm still who I am. Uh, I still had the wrestling pedigree. I I would go into you know, I, I in fact I was getting inducted to one of these one of the halls of fame. One of one of the questions is what was what is one of the things I'm most honored for, and it's being inducted to the International Wrestling Hall of Fame, you know, I, I fly to to China to get inducted to the International Wrestling Hall of Fame and get honored as one of the greatest wrestlers, you know, in the world. I come back home to 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 you know just to a very simple life because I was struggling. But my kids saw that they they witnessed that, and even to this day, my son just mentioned something to me just yesterday that he appreciates me. He understands. The struggle. Uh, he saw me be real uh, creative and trying to find ways to make money. Um, I, I remember once I, uh, and I won't tell that story. But anyway, it it, it was just kind of cool to watch, to watch him, my son, and he was younger. Uh, at when he was one night when he came to live with me, my daughter was sixteen. My older son didn't. He stayed in California. But but the two of them have spoken to me on several occasions about the fact that they. They appreciated how how, you know, I don't know, I didn't quit. I just kept 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 moving ahead, didn't, didn't adopt any bad habits. Kids are watching those kind of things. You know, I didn't drink, I didn't do anything, anything, any any bad habits. They just saw me going to work. And, you know, that old saying that no matter what kind of job you have, although I wasn't a janitor, but you know, you know the saying, whether you're a janitor or whatever, it's an honest job, you go to work every day and you you're supporting your family. I felt like that, you know, even though I wasn't a janitor, but I wasn't, certainly wasn't a owning a multi-million dollar business anymore. I certainly wasn't uh, using my MBA and, uh, you know, down, you know, uh, New York City working for one of the major of package goods companies like I was in the past. You know, I wasn't working for one of the major advertising agencies like I had in the past. I was now at a point in my life, in my fifties, where I was basically starting over with, you know, a 10-year-old and a 16-year-old daughter <clears throat> trying to figure out uh, how I could make ends meet for them, let alone how to get them through college. And by the way, they're all done with college. Or oh, my my youngest son has earned a scholarship in wrestling. I, I moved him in the path that I took, and that was the wrestling path. And it earned him a, scho- a full scholarship to Cal Poly, which I thank him almost every day for that because it changed my life, too, because I got to move to California with him. And uh, I, I embrace every day I walk outside and don't have to deal with shoveling snow, which people that I know right now living in the Midwest and <laughs> Chicago and places, even Texas, whatever, they're shoveling snow right now. So, uh, so, but but by any means, the, the journey's not over. It's one thing that I have learned through 64 years of living is, uh, And I learned, I heard T.D. Jakes say this in an an interview he did with uh, the former prime minister of uh, Liberia, a woman named Ellen Serif. She's probably, she's still living, she's probably 70 now, but she was the first uh, woman, first of all, and she was a black woman at that, head of state of uh, an African nation, Liberia, an amazing woman. And Pastor T.D. Jakes uh, did a podcast with her at It was an amazing uh, podcast to hear uh, those two discussing a very variety of issues but one thing T.D. Jake said in that interview it from her life listening to her speak of the accomplishments of becoming the first uh, female black woman and then female prime minister of an African nation uh, after they went back and forth about that he asked her about how it felt and uh, you know you know, after striving so long to achieve this, this amazing feat. Of course, she mentioned Mandela as being, of course, the, the ultimate champion of uh, Black Africans, how he kind of paved the way. But uh, after hearing her talk about him uh, and after hearing uh, her talk about her struggles, uh, T. J. Jake said, you know, the thing I'm, I'm, under, I'm hearing from this is uh, the reward that you get for winning a battle, and clearly, she, as many people, they fight battles, they have success, she had this ultimate success of becoming the prime minister of, uh, of the head of state of, of Liberia, and then after she went on to talk about her other struggles, he said, you know what, the reward for winning one battle is another battle, and after hearing that, it just was like a revelation that went off in my mind. And I said he's exactly right. That's that's what the reward is for any any amount of struggle that you go through. When you finally come out the other end, you know what your reward is for that? <laughs> another one. You're going to get another one, and your life's going to continue that way until you're no longer uh, of this world anymore. There, there's never a time that you're not in a state of struggle unless 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 you quit life because just waking up in the morning, there's a struggle. Sometimes it's, it's something around the corner. You don't see yet. It could be an accident that could be waiting. It could be, you know, a bad call from a doctor from your last physical it could be anything it could be, it could be anything. And, and as I've learned through uh, the 64 years of living, I, you know, the reward for winning a battle is just another battle. So thank God for the opportunity to have a battle. And uh, also, uh, uh, a legend in tennis, Billie Jean King once said, uh, uh, "Pressure is a privilege of champions. So if you don't have pressure on you, it means you're not in the you're not in the game anymore. Really, there's nothing at stake. So I'd rather be in the game under tremendous pressure because I've got a lot at stake to win.
1: Lee, I, that was that was wonderful. I, I want to go back for just a minute because I think our audience. We'll learn a lot from this. So take us back to the 1980 Olympics. You were of all the potential Olympic athletes, you were probably at the top of the list for someone that was likely to get a gold medal. You know, you had spent at that point, what, 10 years in preparation for the or eight years in preparation for this moment. Of course, President Carter decided to mix politics and sports, which was maybe one of the dumbest decisions of the last 50 years. But what did it mean to make that Olympic team? What did it mean to have that opportunity taken from you? And how over the years have you dealt with that disappointment?
2: That, that's a great question. Uh, it, it, it's uh, the, the way that I can characterize it is – like a death of someone close to you, you know, that person's gone. <clears throat> you you know, you have to move on. You can't just dwell with that death could be it. And I, and I'm sure you too, I'm sure our, our audience knows people, uh, that have died. Parents that have had children die. Parents that have had spouses die. Close friends, best friends, whatever. I mean, we all go through something. So, uh, you have to go on, which you do. And, uh, but that, but that never leaves you. It, it's always something that and you don't have to. You're not walking around sad every day, of course. But but it's but you never forget about it. It never is uh, outside of your mind. And uh, with a sport like wrestling or any sport that's competed in any of the games, that comes around every four years. So every four years, you have to think about it again, whether you want to or not, because now you it's there. And of course, I. I and excited for our young athletes to have a chance to be Olympic champions or at least just to be in the games. It's a wonderful experience for, for anyone to have that opportunity. So I'm, I'm, I'm just absolutely uh, happy and excited for people that have that opportunity Um, to have it taken away for that reason, for a just an arbitrary decision makes it almost impossible to reconcile your mind is something that, 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 was fair. It's still difficult, you know. Forty years, I guess it's been. I don't know. Is that the math right? I guess. Um, yeah, forty-one years. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's still it's still hard because you know, I a large part of life is having confidence, and when you achieve something, r- r- by and large, it comes from. Having a, realisa- a realization of self, self realization, a realization of your abilities, your talent. You know, you actually believe you can do this. Uh, sure, it's going to be hard, but a, you you know that it's possible. It, it's something that you can kind of get this thing done. Uh, I I was so confident that I could be an Olympic champion. I, I there was just no doubt in my mind that that I was gonna that I was not gonna win an Olympic gold medal. Whether it was going to change my life or not? Who knows? Now in 2021, yes, it could change your life. Even in a sport like wrestling, uh, our athletes, even in wrestling, if you win an Olympic gold medal, you get a quarter of a million dollars. That's not life-changing completely. It's not like millions, but it's something. In my era, there was zero, and even before my era, there was nothing. You had to, you were spending money just to be able to be in your sport to compete. So, uh, so. In 1980, it wasn't really going to change my life from a financial point of view, but it was who i th- who I thought I was at the time and uh, it it has created a a whole i't I'll tell you this quick story uh, not a really story but just something really quick I was at a wrestling function and uh, so uh, a lot of our wrestling uh, Olympic champions and world champions were there and uh Invariably, there's photos that want to be taken, and so one of one of our Olympic champions uh, just just kind of mentioned to the photographer, "Hey, let's let's get a picture of us Olymp- Olympic champions." And uh, and and I, I I you know I I heard it, but I was kind of standing in this group, and they all started to move for the picture, and a few people said, "Come on, Lee, come on." Up. And, I, and I go, "Okay," and then somebody said again, "Well, it's just the Olympic champions for this one, you know. And uh, and I thought, wow, that's you know, then I talked about it. So I just kind of stepped back and I watched the photograph. And then I think when I stepped back, a few caring individuals <laughs> realized what was going on and said, no, nah, Lee, come on back. in. I said, no, no, that's okay. That's okay. I'm I'm, I'm good. And so I, I just reminded me that that's life, that's the reality of life. I'm I'm not an chance champion. I could say. That I probably would have been, uh, you know, people that know wrestling could say that, but it didn't.
1: Well, that's a—it's such a powerful story. And for for our audience, I will tell them that Lee eventually became uh, a coach on the uh, Olympic wrestling team. What, what year was that, Lee? Uh, Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Oh, I right was okay. Very good. Well, we, you know, so we have a segment, Lee, that we call the, the speed round, where we, we throw out uh, individuals or philosophies and ask you to pick one and tell us why you, you prefer that. So we'll, we always start with this one, which is Malcolm or Martin?
2: I pick uh, Malcolm and the reason why. Do I have to give a reason why or just the answer? No, please. The reason why is critical. Well, well Malcolm understood at that point in time the depth of evil that that and i'm not talking about all white people because you know we all have friends that are white basically when i use the term white people i'm just using collectively as the people in power that were making the decisions to oppress our people um there are a lot of white people who fought on the side of black people so so when i say white people it's the, the ones that were trying to oppress us but malcolm understood the depth of the evil that that of of the oppressor at that time, and and he knew that it it would take violence if necessary to uh, to break ourselves free from the bondages of our oppressor, and that's the only way you get free from someone oppressing you through through violence, basically. You know, through violence, struggle. He also believed in education as well, and I think Martin believed in 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 education and nonviolence, but I think he. Toward the end of his life, I think he realized that not that he was going to espouse violence, but I think he realized that that he was, I don't know, I it just feels like from his writings, it seems like he was understanding that the the nature of evil that he was up against, we were still a long ways away from peacefully gaining it. And, and I think a combination of, of the two, uh, I mean, we're still in it, you know. It's been 400 years, and we're still going through, you know, some of the same things uh, that we were going through in the 50s and 60s and 40s and 20s and and even further than that. So uh, strength is never demonstrated through the appearance of weakness. I think some people uh, took Martin Luther King as weak because he wasn't aggressive he was aggressive in his peaceful agenda, but no one was afraid of him. They were afraid of what he was accomplishing in his uh, you know, gaining support of masses amount of black people to move in one direction, and that's very positive. But they weren't afraid for uh, you know, I, I think there's got to be a certain amount of fear maybe sometimes to make someone Release their grip on on you, because if you're just relying on their good, their the goodness of their own heart to give you something, uh, as you can see, 400 years and still waiting. I mean, the things that we've gotten have come through through force, and not not necessarily violence against white people, but just forceful movement to where maybe there's enough of an of an intimidation that people just white people just won't mess with you. And you and you go ahead with what you're going to accomplish.
1: Well, let, let me give you two more that, that follows down that path: Muhammad
2: Ali or Jack Johnson. Oh, Jack Johnson for sure. Uh, when you look at that man's life, what the years he lived, I, I kind of looked it up even. I was trying to, I was trying to say, good gosh, he, uh, golly, I was, um, he was winning his what. Uh, Golly, what, what years did he Well, do? world
1: championship he won it uh, in 1908
2: in Australia versus Tommy Burns. Yes, that's the date I was looking for. In 1908, I mean, when you, when you frame that with my, the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till for just looking at a white woman, here he, he had married white women. He was traveling to Europe, all over Europe. He was beating up white people, white men in the ring. I think there was a combination of fear and, and ultimately respect for him because obviously he could have been killed at, at any moment and, and people would have done nothing to the, to the perpetrators because people are being killed now in 2020 and nothing's being done to the perpetrators. So back then, the fact that he did what he did, he lived exactly the way he wanted to live, traveled exactly where he wanted to travel, dated whoever he wanted to date and, and dared anybody to, to tell him he, that they could, that, that he could uh, and he held, the, he held the, the world title for, I don't know, 10 years, maybe? Seven, eight years, yeah.
1: I mean, he lost it under questionable circumstances in Cuba, uh, you know, in like the 34th round against the guy who was actually a bum, who Jack Dempsey literally broke in half just, a, you know, a year later. So a lot of people think he threw that fight to get back to the U.S. because he was – when he lost the fight, the claim is that uh, they double-crossed him and he came back to the U.S. and they put him in jail for, you know, trumped-up charges. But, yeah, he was a special man, no question about it. Yeah, actually, I'll tell one quick story that um, it may be a little bit part of the the history, but I think it's probably true. He was in Chicago – and he used to love fast cars he actually always owned very fast elegant cars and he was doing over the speed limit and the police officer stopped him and he said uh, mr johnson because he was world famous you're driving over the speed limit that's going to be a 50 dollar fine and jack johnson gave the police officer a hundred dollars and the <laughs> officer said no sir it's it's 50. he said well i'm going to be coming back the same way so take the other 50 now uh you know. Yeah, amazing man! L- last one, Lee, on the speed round, um, and you kind of sat in both camps:
2: entrepreneurship or corporate leadership. Entrepreneurship, definitely, because you have control over your own destiny there. Uh, uh, corporate corporate success is great, but corporate success is always controlled by, you know, a whiteboard. People basically, you know, you may have a great position. You could even be president, but but your position could be taken away, could be reversed, and um, there seems to never be a lot of control in that situation. Great, great, um, great accomplishment for sure. But if there's an opportunity to own your own uh, enterprise and to build that, that definitely is, uh, is, I feel, the way to go, the, the way that's going to enrich uh, Black people's lives as a, as a group and builds generational wealth easier.
0: Uh, so definitely entrepreneurship. Lee, thanks you for sharing these stories. It's incredible. I, I can't but help, though, to, to listening to your life story. You have often been at the intersection of Sports and politics and sports and social justice. I mean, the president of the United States killed your ability to win a gold medal. And so I I have to ask you to reflect on the contemporary world in which sports is playing such a prominent role in politics and social justice i mean you can't watch an nba game without seeing black lives matter painted onto the basketball courts or watching the nfl saying you know take all of us to end racism so i'm curious your thoughts not on whether or not athletes should be using their platform or using their voice i mean they're american citizens and their freedom of speech which is a beautiful thing but why do you think it is that so much power is afforded uh, to athletes when they speak out on these issues? And should they be the spokespersons uh, on things like, uh, you know, police killings or social justice issues broadly? You know, that's a great question because
2: uh, a lot of athletes probably, you know, aren't in a position to have maybe the in-depth of knowledge on certain issues, but then they can just talk about something based on just their limited knowledge. And so because they have such a high, a big platform, they can, they can affect and influence large amounts of people. So that, that on the one hand <clears throat> is concerning, but then you've got the actual media itself <clears throat> that they're in place to give information to the public supposedly good, honest, accurate, unbiased information. And that clearly doesn't happen all the time. So, you know, we live in a situation where, you know, every American citizen really has an opportunity because of social media to build a platform. I mean, there's people, athletes or not, but let's just say athletes in this case, you know, they've got millions of followers. You know, even non-athletes have millions of followers. Entertainers have millions of followers. They can espouse a point of view and really affect and get to millions of people, just like the news media can. Uh, I think the news media is very biased at times, most times, actually. So we're living in a very difficult time right now because it's, it's definitely a a cancel culture for sure. And I think we're all in a position to pick and choose who we want to listen to. And I think it's, and I think, you know, I think an athlete has a right to say, as a human being, as a as an American citizen, we live in a country where we can, we should have freedom of speech. And I know there's something in the news right now, you know, like we've censored, you know, people now because of the messages that they've been saying have been bad. They've created conspiracy theories and, and, and even riots so people on both sides are saying you know we are suppressing freedom of speech even though it may not be the speech you want we're not that's wrong because this is America so it, it's you know I don't want to see violence I don't want to see lies conspiracy theories either should we suppress that you know I, I that, that that's a tough one at, at the yeah. same time there are athletes being censored uh, or at least being reprimanded, or uh, you know, uh, uh, LeBron James being told to go shut up and dribble because he makes a, a comment publicly. Uh, you rewind back to the '68 Olympics, where uh, the the black athletes who were track athletes, you know, their whole lives were altered because they made a public statement on the award stand at the Olympic Games. Tommy Evans and and Car- uh, Carlos John Carlos, yep, John Carlos. I mean that. If you read the biography of their lives, their lives were forever changed because of that one act that they did. And, and the, the South African man who was on the war team with him, uh, he was white, his life was ruined because of that. I mean, he ended up dying, of, he died relatively young and was ostracized ever since that moment. So, you know, I think it will always occur whether i think it should happen or not i but that's a tough one because uh, i i my first answer would be yes because you've got all this you know misinformation coming from the actual media itself
0: yeah you know so i mean, yeah. I mean one of the things i find interesting about sports athletes is that as you say they may not be as knowledgeable or as educated but they're often from the communities in which they are expressing, um, you know, the challenges that are being faced, so there there is a level of authenticity, often that that I think even with their the platforms and power that they have, you know, they're they're not their their lives for which they came from are often very close to the issues that they're talking about. So I think it's a it's an interesting issue. Um, well, Lee, we, you know, uh, in, in wrapping up, you know, one of our traditions when Nike and I started this uh, Invisible Men video many years ago, we wanted um, young kids across the country to understand that there are lots of examples of black excellence that they may not be seeing. And we actually, in fact, created a uh, an imaginary young man, Daryl, a 16-year-old, who lives, Black Kid, who lives in Forgotten USA, who, you know, there are a lot of Darrells in the world, of all races, who may be confused right now about what chances they have in their life, given all these barriers, given all these challenges. And I'm curious, as someone who, you know, your life story is extraordinary, you know, what would you tell a Darrell? What would you say to him in terms of how he has to make his way knowing that there may not be anyone coming to his rescue either.
2: That That's a great question. I think um, because I'm 64 years old and I was raised by parents who were from the South who, you know, I remember my father, if he was alive today, he'd be close to hundred years old, I guess, or maybe in his nineties, I guess. But I remember him telling stories of his, of, his great great grandfather was a slave. I mean, just think about that for a second. That's kind of like, it's like that's like, like mind boggling to think about that. So, uh, so people of my generation, especially my my parents' generation, let's just say. So I'm sixty four. So people of that generation, my dad was born in like nineteen eleven or so, somewhere in there, 1911, 1912. Someone of that generation, they were willing to sacrifice a lot for their children, meaning work, any kind of a job they could, didn't matter if they liked the job or not. And they instilled on their children, you know, me, an education. I mean, I had to go to college. There would have been no way that I could not have gone to college. I was always talked about my parents would have worked three jobs each to put me through college. So there was huge amounts of sacrifice there. They went without a lot of things did not buy new cars, the whole bit, all that, because they wanted their son to go to college. And I was fortunate enough during the scholarship, so that was that, that eased all that. But without the scholarship, I still would have gone to college. What I see this Daryl, uh, this young boy named Daryl, a young person today, my, my son's one of, one of the Daryls, he's 20, 20 years old. Young people today are not of the mindset to, to sacrifice as much as maybe my Parents' generation did. I grew up in, a, in an era in a generation. My parents just taught us how to talk to police, taught us how to stay out of trouble. They knew it was wrong. They knew, but it was, it was how we had to live our lives. And they, they were they were making sacrifices. They were teaching us how to make those same sacrifices so that we could move the generations of the Kemp family ahead. That long range thinking, I don't see as much anymore. You know, the average young person, like my son's age, they don't have any, they don't, they don't, they, they didn't live through the civil rights movement at all. They don't know what that's like. They can read about it, maybe. Um, it's not even taught in schools that much. All they know is what they know now. And what they know now is that they think they can make a million dollars just by an idea, which they could. They could, but I don't know if they're willing to sacrifice the long plan B. You know, plan A is to go out and 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 hit it and make it start a company and do all this stuff that's great but there's no plan b there like okay what are you going to do to make sure that you at least have a great life and you instill that same trajectory to your
0: children yeah wow well lee thank you for that very profound and thank you for being our guest on this episode of the invisible men uh you're just a, such a exemplar example of uh, Black excellence throughout your life. I wish that 1980 experience had come through, um, but you're still a gold uh, medal winning um, father, uh, individual and leader. So thank you very much. Um, to our audience, thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. If you want to see all other episodes, you can go to www.invisible men uh, and we, as always, are very committed to bringing you examples examples of black excellence. So thank you, Nike, as always.
1: Yeah, thank you, Ian. and Lee, if, if folks want to find you, I know there was a, a film released about your life, I think last year, I think you got a new book that came out within the last year or so. What, uh, how do they find you, and what are
2: some of your priority projects nowadays? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. On the Invisible Man. It's been, a, uh, it's been a, a, truly a pleasure. And uh, in terms of uh, some initiatives that I'm doing now, uh, the documentary, uh, you'll learn more about Lee Kemp that he actually knows about himself. Sometimes I, <laughs> I see things in there that I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. that's in there. But anyway, um, it's called Wrestled Away, the Lee Kemp Story. Uh, I also have a book called Winning Gold. It's a book of inspirational messages. A short book, you can open it up to any page and hopefully be inspired. And I have some initiatives in wrestling. Uh, I have a 16-video series called Your Greatest Season. And all of these things uh, you can find uh, on my website at LeeCamp.com.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for your time, Lee. A real
0: pleasure.
2: Lee, oh, thank you're welcome. You. Thanks for having thank
0: me. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.